Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity Company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. From the Milton Metz Studio in the Radio TV building at Indiana University, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host WFIU-WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. The United States has a problem with growing income inequality. The Post-World War II period saw major economic growth in the U.S., and the increases in earnings were fairly well distributed until the 1970s when the economy slowed down. While top-bracket incomes continued to grow, lower-bracket incomes became stagnant. This trend has largely continued to the present day as CEO pay far outstrips that of lower employees. And on Today's noon edition, we're going to be discussing that issue uh, and more about the widening income inequality in Indiana and around the country with two guests. Erin Macy has joined us. She's policy analyst at the Indiana Institute for Working Families. And Dr. Leslie Linkowski, a professor of practice at the School of Public and Environmental Affairs, is here with us today as well. If you have questions or comments, you can join us on the program at 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also contact us, news at indianapublicmedia.org, if you want to send us a question. And we're also on Twitter at Noon Edition. So thanks for being here, Aaron, and thanks, Les, for being back. Les has been on the program before. We, we're going to talk about this this issue. So I, I'd like for – Les, could you kind of outline the issue? And, you know, I gave some history there in the open. I hope it was right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think we've been concerned for quite a, a bit of time. In fact, I've been teaching a course on this that equality of income – find it in a minute – in the United States has been diminishing. In other words – People at the upper end of the income or wealth uh, spectrum have more of it relative to people at the lower end. This is a little different from poverty. Poverty is not really a relative uh, uh, concept. Income distribution is. Do the rich get, are the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer? We're in, when we talk about poverty, we're mostly concerned with the standard of living of the poor or the nearly poor. Uh, so these are the concepts we're looking at, and they're very difficult to measure. They're very difficult to to think about. Um, the same people from the people in different parts of the income distribution from year to year, not the same people. Family composition changes. Number of people working changes. People with or without high school or college education change. So you've got to really parcel these out to get an accurate picture of what's going on. Mm-hmm. So, um, Aaron, I want to turn to you and, and say what you know in the in the uh, area where you work. I mean, what what are the concerns about this growing inequality? Yeah. So we um, we talk about this and think about this in terms of what families are experiencing, what working families are experiencing. And if you're looking at the difference between median wages and, say, company profits, it looks like a crocodile's mouth that's open, right? Wages have been fairly flat for working families where companies are are doing really well. And what this translates to is families making incredibly difficult decisions, feeling uh, like they're living on the edge or being pushed over the edge sometimes into bankruptcy, say they're rationing medications, they're going back to work two weeks after a C-section because they can't pay the bills, they're leaving their infants in substandard child care so that they can work. And so these stories are really um, common across Indiana, and it's something that we need to be worried about and we need to fix. Mm-hmm. So we have those anecdotes, but why is it so difficult to, ha- to get good data, to get good numbers? 
Well, um, every year the Census Bureau does issue a report called Income and Poverty in the United States. Uh, next month, September, we will see the report that will cover 2017. The last data comes through 2016. Uh, the reason why it's so difficult to get good data is because of how we define what income is. For example, when we ask a person uh, what their income was when the Census Bureau does, uh, they're looking at really cash income for the most part, what you earned, what you received uh, in Social Security or temporary assistance for needy family benefits, unemployment compensation, and so on. But they're not looking at some of the f types of income a person will have that have been growing most rapidly. The earned income tax credit, which supplements the wages of low-income people. Food stamps, which provides in-kind assistance, in other words, mon uh, a, a way of buying food. Housing supplements, and also the big ones, Medicare and Medicaid benefits. So we have a lot of... Uh, dispute over what is income. Uh, we also know that um, we have a lot of dispute about how to adjust our, our thresholds for inflation. What's the right measure to use? It turns out the consumer price index tends to overstate inflation, and so a lot of economists believe it produces too high a threshold for poverty. So well, there are lots of other uh, of these issues. Just one point with regard to income, uh, with regard to income equality, um, that's some partly a matter of income, but it's also a matter of wealth. There are people, I happen to be one of them at the moment since I am retired, whose accumulated wealth, while not substantial, uh, exceeds my annual income. By a long shot, and I will be living off of the proceeds from that wealth. And there are lots of people who do this. Yeah, Aaron, look like you want to respond. I do. I, I want to talk about the measurement of poverty because since you brought it up, I think that's a good point. I'm not sure that when we measure poverty, <clears throat> we're accurately capturing all of the people who are struggling. Our poverty measure was developed in the 1960s. It's three times the cost of a basic food budget adjusted for inflation. And that doesn't really reflect the basic costs that families are grappling with day to day. So on our website, we have the indianaselfsufficiencystandard.org. It's a calculator that takes into, into account what you've said, the earned income tax credit, and the other basic costs a family would need to meet by county to be economically self-sufficient. Um, and what we find from that information is that really you have to be looking at 200 percent of the federal poverty level and for some families even higher to meet that bar of just being able to meet your basic costs. Now, as you said, we have a lot of programs that support families in meeting those basic costs. But in Indiana... We've really let those programs erode. Temporary assistance for needy families, which is a cash benefit, currently serves fewer than 2,000 adults. The mark for, getting, uh, for being eligible for TANF is $288 a month. If you make more than that, you are not eligible for cash welfare, and you have a time limit of two years. Our average SNAP benefit that's our nutrition assistance, is $117 per person per month. Not exactly a generous benefit that's going to help you afford food. And finally, on housing, I would say three out of four of the people who would be eligible for housing support don't receive it because that's a block grant. There's a certain amount of money, and then it runs out. So families aren't necessarily receiving all of the supports that they need to make up for the low incomes that they have. Um, and therefore, we have a lot of families struggling. It's not just an anecdote. It, it, it certainly uh, is true that there are differences among states and among regions. In fact, uh, the poorest region of the United States continues to be the southern states. But if you looked at this nationally and used a very comprehensive measure, the poverty rate is actually a lot lower than most people think. Last September... Uh, the University of Notre Dame Lab for Economic Opportunities 
produced what it calls an estimate of consumption poverty, which is how much resources, income earned, transfers, and kind income, on average, do families have. And uh, the economists who did this estimated that between 2015 and 2016, the consumption poverty measure nationally fell from 3.4% of households to 3%. That's an extraordinary figure when you think about it. Basically, it means that one out of 30 people for, are poor, according to this measure. Uh, number might be higher. We could argue about what's in and what's out. Uh, but we shouldn't uh, get into a situation where we look at what is essentially a generally good situation and say the sky is falling. Before we leave the the idea of how you measure uh, these things, um, so Les, you talked about on the lower end what's not included on the lower end. How accurate is the higher end? I mean, when, when you talk about income of someone of – you know, of of means, what all is included there, and and does it really show how well off they are? Uh, probably underestimates that, mostly because of the difficulty of estimating certain the value of certain kinds of assets. For example, what is a mansion worth today? Is it worth what you paid for it? Is it worth what it appreciated? Its appreciated value? Do we ever really know? until it actually goes on the market and we see what somebody's willing to pay for it. And as we look at the upper end of the um, income distribution, we find, as I suggested earlier, that a lot of people uh, have more in assets and live off the income of those assets than in earned and other kinds of income. All right. Our phone numbers, if you want to call us and talk about uh, the wage gap and some of these issues, uh, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. I feel like we're always hearing that the economy is doing well and Indiana has those banners. You know, It's a state that works. Things here – are going well. So how can we have so much income inequality if the economy is good? Well, I, I think the answer there is just it depends on who's capturing the benefits of the economy. And we just released a report today called The Status of Working Families in Indiana. Um, and it looks at uh, poverty rates, jobs and income, and finds really that we're, our, our families, our typical families, are not capturing the benefits of an increased economy. They're working. Our unemployment rates are low. But wages are also low. And if you look at the top jobs in Indiana and what are projected to be the top jobs going forward, many of them are, are low-wage jobs. I also wanted to touch on, we just talked about the upper end of the income bracket, and you had mentioned wealth. And I'll throw some stats in there, too, because I think income inequality is one thing. Wealth inequality is even bigger. So to be in the top 400 richest Americans, you need a net worth of $1.7 billion. And the average there is $6 billion. And I love the explainer that's going around uh, Twitter and social media that says a million seconds is 12 days, but a billion seconds is 32 years. The difference between millions and billions is huge. So we have families that are, that are really astronomically wealthy. And then we have real divides in wealth, particularly by race and also by gender. And I think those are, those are issues worth touching on as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just to get back to the, the question you asked, Sarah, um, race, gender, education, family composition are all non-economic factors in a way that ultimately have implications for how much a person earns or how much wealth a person has. We spend a lot of time studying and debating this. One of the problems in Indiana, as we well know, is that the proportion of the population that has a college degree or better is lower than many of our surrounding states. That makes it a bigger challenge to get higher paying jobs in the state, which ultimately leads uh, to what Aaron has just described, which is wage earners having jobs that pay less. 
Is the problem one of the economy or is the problem one of education or both? Uh, there are uh, these kinds of issues that we see. Uh, the economy makes a great deal of difference in income and wealth distribution. But what the latest uh, studies suggest is other things matter more. One study, for example, talked a lot about internships that college students get. And college students use those internships to get better jobs. Well, some college students have better networks to draw on for those internships than others. And indeed, there have been some proposals really to, to have some sort of regulation of internships. Mm -hmm. Aaron, I wanted to ask you, have you talk a little bit more about the, the gender gap because I, I ran across something that you had written this morning about uh, wages, wealth, and poverty, where Hoosier women stand and ways our state can close the gap. This was a report that your organization put out, and you, yeah. you said that you were looking forward to seeing it until you actually saw it, sort of. Yeah. Right? So we were talking before the show about um, Census Day, the day that census data is released, and I had been working on this report on the gender wage gap. And we were just waiting for the 2016 numbers to come out, and what we saw really shocked me. We saw men's median wages kind of shoot up a little bit, and women's wages really stayed stagnant. So, I mean, we dug into this issue, and it's multifaceted. It's not all pay discrimination. That's a part of it. But another part of it is the supports for caregiving, which women disproportionately do. And our state has invested less than many other states in things like preschool and child care. We don't offer a child care tax credit that many other states do. So uh, it's going to take a variety of things to address that issue. Um, but I think we have to think about the effects on women, on people of color, of the policies that we're creating and how they spread income out um, unfairly. What are what are some policies that you would suggest that the legislature look at this year? Oh, well, I've got a, a big list. Um, <laughs> Pick the top two or three. <laughs> okay. So we are part of the Equality Pays Coalition that's looking at strengthening Indiana's equal pay law. That would help address pay discrimination. So would um, increasing collective bargaining. When uh, people are able to collectively bargain, wages are both more transparent, they're higher, and they have more benefits. Um, and then in terms of the caregiver supports, we'd like Indiana to look at paid family and medical leave, which has been shown in other states to increase women's labor force attachment in particular, and more supports for child care through child care tax credits, through investments in pre-K. We also want to see pregnancy accommodations. New York Times just did a big expose on pregnancy discrimination in the workforce, which is still a huge issue. And where you see the gender wage gap grow is when, uh, when women have families. Mm -hmm. But we ought to keep in mind as well that if we're talking about new programs uh, such as uh, wider pre-K uh, child care, uh, they all have to be paid for in some way or another. A state like Indiana, which is a, has a relatively low, compared to other states, state income tax, uh, relies heavily on sales taxes and property taxes, and those fall more heavily on the lower income people as a share of their income than on upper income people. Uh, the in, uh, the uh, there's a lot of talk about Medicare for all right now, uh, and obviously access to health care is an important issue. But if Medicare for all is financed the same way Medicare for some is financed, uh, it will come through our Social Security taxes, which fall heavily on all working class people, uh, not just upper income people. So we always have to keep in mind that there are plenty of things we could think of doing, but everything has a cost. And we have to make sure that in putting new programs in place, we don't unintentionally make things worse. I'm really interested in this, uh, the intersection of politics and income equality, because if we see this getting worse and worse, this 1% is sort of becoming more powerful, it seems like, in terms of creating tax laws that benefit them. 
Well, yes and no. I mean, there been we have discussed the question of equality for a very long time in our country, going back, you might say, to the Gilded Age of the 19th century. In comparison to some of the European welfare states, uh, equality and inequality have never had as much political resonance in the United States. And one theory for that is that the public as a whole uh, is prepared to tolerate discrepancies, disparities in income and wealth if it believes that those are deserved, number one, and number two, uh, that other citizens could also aspire to uh, achieve those levels of wealth. A simple example is the big debate we've had over the estate taxes, which uh, repeal of the estate tax, which has had some very interesting political coalitions that you wouldn't expect. For example, small farmers, not particularly wealthy people, uh, have supported abolishing the estate tax because it weighs heavily on their farms. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a short break here. Uh, we're talking about income inequality, <clears throat> wealth inequality with two guests today, Aaron Macy, a policy analyst at the Indiana Institute for Working Families, and Dr. Leslie Lenkowski, professor of practice in the School of Public and Environmental Affairs. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. the Milton Metz studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live. And you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines. Plus, the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't find anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. We're talking with our guests today, Aaron Macy, policy analyst at the Indiana Institute for Working Families, and Dr. Leslie Linkowski, professor of practice at the School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University. We're talking about uh, income and wealth inequality. If you have questions or comments, you can join us at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. Outside of the Bloomington calling area, you can also reach us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. We have a phone call. We're going to go first, right to the phones. DJ is on the line. DJ? Hi there. I'm enjoying the discussion. Good. Thanks. Um, I have a quick comment um, and maybe a question, but otherwise I'll let you guys discuss it. Uh, whenever I hear discussions like this, it's hard for me to not remember the conclusion that I've come to, which is that in about the last 40 years, and I'm not going to point the finger entirely at, at Republicans or conservatives, but I will say they've done a very, very good job of, of a two-pronged attack, which is, one, is to undermine the idea of paying taxes as a citizen or, or to by, by putting all taxes as a bad thing and by punishing and threatening politicians who have to raise money through the through, through taxes so taxes are bad and the second idea is that government is bad and the idea that the government is the enemy and that it is this foreign entity that is out to threaten us and to get us and that's where we have ourselves today where people have more trust in corporate entities than they do in their own government and they're unwilling to pay taxes 
when it's that money that's actually going to help them and their fellow man, um, if that sounds idealistic to you, I, I just every time I hear an issue being discussed and I hear the answer, there just isn't enough money. Um, I, it's 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 very hard not to think of those two conclusions that the taxes have been eroded and it's it's a self perpetuating thing of look how inept the government is, look how poor public schools are doing. We'll cut taxes. We'll fund the private sector. We'll privatize our highway construction. And these are things that happen. And then the second big elephant in the room is the Pentagon. We are a militaristic economy, and we, whether we're at war or not, and we are perpetually, we, there's no amount of money that we're not willing to spend on, on that. And that isn't money that's going to the fighting soldiers because the, the very poorest county in North Carolina is the one where Fort Bragg is located. And... Those are, there are families of working on active duty soldiers who live on welfare. There are, this is what, this is what I don't understand, and I'll, I'll make my last comment, and then maybe you can speak to it, but how is it that we have a, a military complex that's so well-funded, yet we have soldiers who are active duty living on food stamps and below the poverty line? And how is it that the two of the biggest employers, namely Walmart and Amazon, have all these full-time employees who are receiving benefits because they don't make enough money to, to make a living wage. Are we not subsidizing Walmart? Is Walmart, Walmart not being subsidized by the taxpayer? I wish you'd discuss that, and I'm enjoying the discussion in general, and thank, thanks for your time. Thank you, DJ. That's a lot a lot of ground to cover. So who, who, which one of you? Okay, Les, why don't you go first? Yeah, those are points you hear often in in this um, debate. Let me make a couple of responses to it. First of all, if you look at the federal budget, you'll see the percentage of uh, the budget that goes for defense spending is exceeded by the amount going for various kinds of social spending by a lot now. And by social spending, I am including Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. And those numbers are growing up, going going up. Um, we have also uh, spent a lot, spend, we do spend a lot of the military budget on technology. Uh, the idea being that it's, uh, that a smaller number of soldiers actually in military activity would mean a fewer deaths and injuries as well. So part of the pay issue probably has to do with balance between spending on soldiers and spending on jet planes and drones and so forth. With regard to uh, the social spending, though, there have been any number of studies, and again, like everything we've been talking about, you can get lots of debate about them, that would show if you took all the money we currently spend on various social programs and divided it among people who fall below the poverty line, households who fall below the poverty line, or even are slightly above the poverty line using a more expansive definition like as Aaron talked about, there would be plenty of money to raise everybody above the poverty line. So why doesn't this happen if we're spending so much? Well, very few federal social programs are designed simply to eliminate poverty. Take Social Security. It is designed to help elderly people, many of whom used to be and still are poor, but a lot of the money goes to people who are not poor. And you could go through food stamps would be another one like that, the earned income tax credit, the, the benefits go into the lower middle classes. The other concern we have and have always had is simply redistributing the money we're currently spending on social programs to help the needy uh, might have some uh, effects that we don't desire, including reducing things like incentives to work and support oneself. Now, again, these are all debatable, but I just wanted to report on this paradox that the caller raised. Mm -hmm. 
Erin? There's a lot in there, and I, I really appreciated the caller's point about taxes. You say taxes in a vacuum, and most people will have a negative reaction. However, when you tie taxes to the things that we spend them on, the things like public parks, public schools, um, I think the favorability is much different. So I think it's important and for all of us to, to be co- constantly talking about what we get from our tax dollars. And you had talked earlier about um, all of these things cost money and those can disproportionately fall onto lower income families, but that's a choice we're making. And we could choose differently. Um, Take a look at the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. That disproportionately benefited the wealthy. We could have done something different and disproportionately benefited lower income families. Um, And I also understand people's concerns about government. It sometimes feels like government is working for corporations um, and not for working people. And I spend time in our state legislature and I see all of the lobbyists there that are able to spend a lot of time sort of spinning their perspective to our lawmakers. Um, But I think that just... We can't just eliminate government. We need to fix it. It's there to um, to work for all of us, and that takes all of us being engaged um, and and making sure that we're getting out and making decisions on candidates that we feel are going to support our interests. And finally, I'll just say on the on the Amazon, Walmart, and social spending side of things, you know, there's there's debate about how best to structure jobs and whether or not you should raise wages or just offset low wages with social programs. But I think one of my concerns is how stigmatizing we've made participation in social welfare programs that many folks won't even take the help when uh, when it's available to them. So I do think that raising wages so that people are getting what they're earning, I mean, productivity is going up, and yet workers are not seeing increases in their wages, um, is really an important thing to do. All right. Thank you for the call, DJ. Our numbers eight one two eight five five zero eight one one or one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. You can also reach us news at indianapublicmedia.org. So it, it, do, you, do you feel like income inequality is inevitable? I mean, is this really a, a – and I guess two parts of that. Is it really a bad thing necessarily? Could it be good? Uh, yes, I do think it's inevitable because we don't really have agreement on what income equality would look like. Would income equality mean that everybody gets exactly the same amount if that's the case? What do you do about differences in talent or the need to pay people more because they are doing tasks that you really want more talented people to do? As a faculty member, I always resented the difference between my salary and that of the coach of the IU football team. On the other hand, as I'm sure the athletic director would tell you, To get a good football coach, they need to pay more than to get a good public policy professor. And I couldn't disagree with him on that. (laughs) So, you know, what is the right standard? If we can't agree on that, then the corollary is that some inequality will be inevitable. Now, I think, I don't want to put words in Aaron's mouth, but I think the question is, are we have too much than is reasonable? Certainly, I think some of the very large salaries that corporate executives and indeed university officials receive uh, may be excessive. Uh, But on the other hand, most of these salaries are set by boards of one sort or another, reflect the market, are keyed to performance and so on. And in the end, accountability ought to prevail. I'd like to give a shout out to the IU Bloomington professor who made me read John Rawls' Theory of Justice, <laughs> because the concept in there is that you, you would permit inequality in income to the extent that it still benefits people at the lower end of the spectrum. So you're letting people use their talents and be rewarded differently, but you're making sure that there's still benefit um, at the lower end. And I, I mean, I don't know, honestly, what that looks like. But it feels like where we are where we are now is really out of whack. Well, I think I, in the open, I talked about 1983. The average between or the a CEO may, would, could count on making 41 times 
the worker, and now it's I think it was 347 times the worker. This seems like a huge gap between the high and the low. And I think we, we see it in news stories when when some company will run aground and the CEO will leave with some huge payout because I, I don't know why exactly. So let's talk about, you know, that growth in the gap between the two less. Yeah, I agree with you. I think, you know, these are, uh, you know, quite uh, annoying and disgusting in some ways. But let me talk a little bit about how we got there. And the way we got there was way back in the 70s. Um, a lot of people who studied corporations thought that leaders of corporations should be paid according to the performance of their companies. And so a variety of things, stock options and so forth, and a lot of these high levels you see are deferred kinds of payments rather than actual payments in a particular year were built in. So if I am a, were a CEO and I had 10 great years, I probably wound up having the option to purchase stock that was quite, quite considerable. The fact that the company would then turn down might reduce the value of the stock I purchase, or if I could just wait, I might exercise my option at some later date. So the major driving factor in corporate salaries has been a desire, rightly or wrongly, to make them more dependent on the performance of the corporations. Uh, when we look at organizations like universities, hospitals, another one, where you don't have stockholders, where you don't have a market. Salaries are going to be set the way corporate salaries used to be by a group, a board of directors meeting usually in a private meeting and determining what the CEO or other senior officials are, work, there's, are worth. There's no real market test. Mm -hmm. Aaron, did you want to respond? I'm glad you raised the stock options because I think part of what we're seeing now with the stock buybacks um, that's where most of our uh, tax cuts are, are currently going is a part of that that tie to the compensation. But I also kind of love that figure that you've raised, the mm -hmm. 300 and whatever mm -hmm. times the average worker, because if you put that in, in terms of time, like you want to follow a CEO for one day, because in one day they're earning what their typical worker spends an entire year earning. And like, what did they do on that day? It must be like magical, you know? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I, it's hard to do the math, but I think if you look at that 41 figure, it's not quite that hard to do the math. I mean, if, if somebody's making $10,000 a year at the low end and somebody's making four, 40 times that, that's $400,000, right? And 10000 isn't a salary people make anymore. So. Another thing, though, we need to keep in mind, especially when we look at the income distribution tables, is they're usually based on households. So we have seen a growth in two-earner professional couples. Uh, so if you had, for example, a household where uh, that both he the heads of the household were both lawyers, both partners in law firm, you get a very substantial salary, making it look like this is a very wealthy family, and it is, but it also is the result of a lot of work by two people. Right. We have a phone call, so let's go to Conrad, who's on the line. Conrad? Oh, hi. Am I on? Yes, you are. Uh, okay, great. Um, I love the football coach analogy because um, how many years has it been since we've had a winning season? Um, and uh, we have other much more accomplished coaches who have academic programs with much better record, and they're paid far less than the football coach. So I think that's really a perfect example of income equality. Um, but I have uh, two, two questions or two things that I'd like to hear comments on. First is the idea of the uni universal basic income. Um, and that's something that's getting some uh, discussion right now, uh, particularly in the more progressive circles. And the second is the issue of affordable housing. Um, I remember, uh, I don't know, years ago, 20 years ago or more, reading about communities like Aspen and Santa Barbara which housing was so expensive, 
all of the workers who needed to fill the low-income wages that were necessary to keep the businesses running couldn't afford to live there. And many of them had significant commute times. And it seems to me we're headed in that direction here in Bloomington with all of the development and the uh, skyrocketing rents. It's becoming harder and harder to afford to live here. So uh, I'd like to hear comments about uh, both of those particular issues. And I'm going to sign off now, but uh, thanks. It's been a great discussion. Thank you. I'm very interested to see this discussion of the universal basic income pop up um, because 45 years ago I wrote a Ph.D. dissertation about this. Uh, No less than Richard Nixon proposed a variety of universal basic income back in the 1960s, early 70s. Uh, at, the, at the same time, there are about two dozen other countries looking at this. There's a lot that's very appealing, particularly to um, economically or public policy-minded people. Let's get rid of all these programs and instead give cash to needy people. Wouldn't that be much more efficient? And as I suggested before, the amount of cash might be even greater Uh, A very controversial speaker we had here two years ago, Charles Murray, actually is one of the leading proponents of doing exactly that. Uh, But there's also a lot of – and today we're seeing a lot of support for this out of Silicon Valley, which sees a universal basic income as important as we move toward a more technologically driven society. Uh, The problems, though, have to do with our concerns about whether people should get money without some test of deservingness, what the uh, income, what effects it would have on incentives to work, to support families, to gain additional education, all of which we think are valuable for reasons besides their economic benefits. So I think I understand it, but just to make sure and clarify, can you just define universal basic income? A universal basic income would be a regular payment, say $1,000 a month per person or per household, no questions asked, with, however, depending on the form it takes, above a certain income, earned income level, the amount of the payment might start to go down. So let's say the median household income is about $60,000 in the United States today. So let's say once you reach $60,000, the amount goes down gradually, maybe by um, $1 for every $2 additional dollars earned. Okay. That's really – that's interesting because it feels like in Indiana we have a lot of these problems like with the pre-K pilots where they cut off at a certain income level and then you have these people who are just stuck in this gap who don't make enough where they can afford to send their kids to child care. Um, and they also don't qualify for the subsidy. So we call that a poverty trap, and that's exactly what sank President Nixon's effort at that. Mm. Even back in the early 70s, we had enough different programs with enough different rules and cutoffs so that as people went from one income level, earned income level to another, they were facing implicit tax rates of 75 percent or more. We call this the benefits cliff, and we've we've got a video about it on our, our website that illustrates using childcare as an example. Mm-hmm. So imagine you know you're uh, a parent and you're receiving a childcare voucher, and suddenly you're offered a twenty five cent an hour raise, and suddenly you're losing seven hundred dollars in in a childcare subsidy. I mean, that's a real disincentive to take a promotion or to work overtime or whatnot. And actually, that's one area where Indiana public policy got ahead of other states. We have now uh, ladder-stepped people on childcare. So once you qualify, you receive a voucher, you receive it full of, for a full year, and then you start to stair-step with a increasing copay the more your income goes up. And I think that's one thing that's appealing about the universal basic income. There's so many of these rules and uh, administrative tasks that you have to do, sending in your bank statements for this one. And um, it would it would eliminate a lot of that paperwork that ends up pushing people inadvertently off of the benefits programs that they really they need to, to make ends meet. The other piece is we have a lot of spending on social programs. I'll use TANF as an example that don't go to cash benefits for the families at all. Only 6% of our TANF spending in Indiana goes to the cash benefits for families, 
Some of that goes to childcare, um, and I think that's important. That's supporting the families in in going to work. Um, but a lot of that spending is going to I don't know where. Yeah, a famous American senator who studied these issues, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, used to refer to that as feeding the sparrows by feeding the horses. Mm-hmm. Is that so? Are those administrative costs? Is that what a lot of that? And social from? service costs, mm-hmm. counselors, grant and- program. You know, granting out to different programs that are serving low-income families, mm-hmm. but um, but not giving that direct resource to the families, which actually ties into the second point that the caller raised around affordable housing. And that is, I can say, not just a Bloomington issue. That is all across the state. Families are really struggling, particularly with rental housing affordability um, compared to their incomes. And as I said, you know, three and four families that qualify for housing assistance don't receive it. We just don't um, have enough funds available that we that we give to families. And we also have some problems with those programs in that even once you receive a voucher for housing as a family, um, your landlord can say, "Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to take that source of income." So you could really struggle to find uh, a suitable place to live, even if you do have assistance. Mm-hmm. If you have a last-minute call, we can take one more call today: eight one two eight five five zero eight one one or one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. News at indianapublicmedia.org. How does income inequality affect education in terms of how is it can maybe contributing to or to keeping people who are in lower middle class or in poverty in poverty in lower middle class? Well, one of them again has to do with housing. I mean, if you look at um, the quality of education, um, it's and how we've tied education to your neighborhood where you're able to purchase a home. Um, there are some really um, unbelievable differences um, in terms of the outcomes for students, in terms of the types of classes students are offered, in terms of the type of discipline students experience at different schools. Uh, I think that's a really important issue to raise. Yeah, I agree completely with that, that there is a tie between one's income, where one lives, the amount of time parents can invest in reading to their children and doing other things. If you're low-income, hard-working parent, you have less time to do that. The amount of extracurricular activities, schools now charge for a variety of extracurricular activities, which could price them out of the range of low-income children as well. This is one of the arguments you don't hear too often for educational choice. Public schools typically are tied to the geographical location of housing. In educational choice, generally, it's not perfect, and it certainly has its flaws, uh, people can elect to send their children to some other school that might be in a different neighborhood where they will uh, go to school with other children, have different kinds of experiences than if they went to their neighborhood school. Mm-hmm. The other option there is that we really invest in the schools and the communities that are that are currently underserved. Um, and I think that would be honestly the best option because not every family is going to uh, be able to assess the quality differences in schools, be able to commute and bring their child somewhere else. Um, and what we find in the choice space is a lot of these new charter schools, private schools, actually aren't faring better. Um, and it's really difficult as a parent to tell. I mean, I have a background in education. I go and visit a school for a day. It's really hard for me to assess the quality of that school just based on that and based on the metrics that are published about if, the school. Of course, it's just as hard to assess the quality of your neighborhood school. Mm-hmm. True. We only have about three minutes to go, so I, I just want to, uh, again, sort of frame this. And we've seen that there, there is a growing gap. You know, um, We've talked about poverty, which is different from the gap, but there is a gap where the people at the top end are making more and more and more, and the people at the lower end are not rising nearly as fast. If we uh, agree that that's a problem, what are a couple solutions you would recommend? Well, I would I would talk about increasing worker power in a variety of ways. One would be collective bargaining. I mean, I think we've seen a decline in wages, especially here in Indiana, tied to right to work and um, 
the ability to collectively bargain. That's that's where workers can get some leverage on um, companies. I also am interested in the idea of worker representation, say, on the boards of companies. Um, Another strategy would be through higher tax brackets at the upper end that disincentivize these ridiculous uh, compensation packages. Of course, we've just moved in the opposite direction. I think uh, we need to pay more attention than we have for education and job-related training for lower-income people, non-traditional students, people who may have dropped out of high school or left high school with a degree but no post-high school education, and we'll have a difficult time getting the jobs of the future that will be better-paying jobs. This is a huge gap all across the country. Indiana has a couple of organizations, Lumina Foundation, Strata, and others that are trying to deal with this. There have been efforts nationally, but we have a long way to go. We still have a very large working-class, lower-middle-class population that is not getting the opportunities that would produce higher levels of income. All right. Thank you very much. We have run out of time. We had, we had a caller try to get in, but we just don't have time for another call today. So, Aaron Macy, thanks for coming down. Thank you. We appreciate your being here. And Dr. Les Linkowski, thanks again for being with us. Uh, for our producer, Patrick McGurr, engineer Mike Pashkash, and co-host Sarah Whitmire, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.